Greetings and welcome to the worship services of Alamo First Baptist Church. I'm Brother Chris Rigby. I'm standing here this morning in front of our bell. This is the original bell that was at our old location uh, years ago. It uh, was there when the church was first built and it was always a call to worship. Well, when we moved to our new campus here several years ago, we brought it with us. And not too long ago, we got to put it up. We're so excited about it because it reminds us that we're coming together into this building to worship. And we are excited that today you've decided to tune in to our broadcast to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our prayer this morning is that you will see the great love that Jesus has for you and the great love that we have for you as well this morning as we worship together. We look forward to meeting you and your family and we invite you to be a part of any of our worship services, our activities or ministries here and if you'd like to get in touch with us, probably the best way to do that is just drop us a line at our email address, alamofirstbaptist at gmail.com. All of it spelled out, just gmail.com, alamofirstbaptist. We look forward this morning to worshiping with you. We pray God's blessings upon you and your family as we go inside now and we worship together. Let's go ring that bell for Jesus.
we sent out a, a sign up uh, on Facebook, online, or on the uh, flight mode app so that you can do that. By the way, if you've not done it with the flight mode app, be sure to do that because that's the easiest way to get notifications. Like, for example, uh, if we need to cancel because of the bad weather or getting any that kind of season again, that we're able to send that out and we're able to fulfill that immediately. As a matter of fact, we're going to go ahead
Jesus, we'd like to say a word of welcome to you, and we're going to have a time of greeting. We're going to do just that because it's kind of COVID and flu season. Just cross your elbow bumps, all right, or just wave, thumbs up, that'll be fine. But we're going to have a chance to just kind of make sure everyone here today feels welcome. If you're visiting with us online, we'd like to say a word of welcome to you. Uh, and we're glad to have you. We hope that you will come and join us in person someday. But right now, let's stand, greet our guests and neighbors, and then we'll sing the country portion just a little bit.
take your Bibles morning and open to Mark 8, and uh, while you're doing that, our little guys, and we'll make the way to Children's Church. You can just head right over there, and that would be our entrance. Amen. I want to be in Mark 8 with you. We're going to be here for some time, and I want to say that this may be my favorite preaching chapter in all the Bible. I've preached a couple different times in out of Mark 8, and as a matter of fact, I actually went back to the original Bible that y'all had presented to me 20 years ago, the one the deacons gave me, because it's marked up, so I just uh, have preached so many times, either here or in revival somewhere, out of this chapter, and I just love the message that is here for us. We've, we're in a series, remember, for a little while, before Christmas came questions that God asked, and I want us to go back into that and think about the questions that God asked. We've been in the Old Testament, and now I want us to move into the New Testament, questions that God asked us. Carrie Rome, Marco, I think I'm trying to say her name, uh, she was a writer in the New Yorker magazine, and she wrote an article in 2016 about the dangerous jellyfish, if you've ever heard of it. But anyway, she writes this. She says, we still have a couple of months before Shark Week media sets in. So, in the meantime, she said, here's a public service announcement that, well, some of the worst things about the beach that are often much smaller than sharks. For example, she says, there are the biting sand flies, grains of sand lodge uncomfortably uh, in the bad places, uh, that burn on the skin, you know, places where the sunscreen is mixed, uh, mist. She said the worst of that is also a tiny jellyfish. jellyfish. And she said that this one, whose sting can actually make you acutely aware of your own mortality. She goes on to say, I'm not much of a beach person anyway, but I'm much decidedly less so now after reading about the uh, Akenji jellyfish. There's a collection of jellyfish species that's less than an inch long whose sting can cause symptoms so severe and so bizarre as to have a medical condition actually named after them. Uh, Akenji syndrome, she calls it. It is characterized by vomiting, headaches, anxiety, cramping, and uh, most distinctly, she says, a state that scientists have described as, well, a feeling of impending doom. Patients believe they're going to die, and they're so certain they actually beg their doctors to kill them just to get it over with. One Australian biologist, uh, uh, Lisa Gershman, told the uh, BBC affiliate radio station in 2007, they won't die as long as they have medical attention, but they experience this cornucopia of hellish sensation that makes them want to die. Why share that story? Well, perhaps after 2020 and 2021, you have a sense of impending and as you think about looking into 2022, uh, you've got to wonder 
what this next year is going to throw at us. You know, it's not very often that a 100-year pandemic rolls around. Praise God. Aren't you glad? And things do seem to be getting a little bit better, and we're excited about that. But uh, I tell that story not only because of where we've been and maybe what this next year holds, but I also talk uh, about that to share with you about this chapter that we're going to be part in for the next couple of weeks. And we can look at these questions that God asked, the Old Testament questions. Really, we were in the book of Genesis. In fact, those were the questions of why you remember God asking Adam and Eve uh, why they uh, did this thing, why they said that. He asked where they were, where are you, where they were hiding from you. And then we looked at what is this thing that you have done when Cain killed his brother Abel. And then we looked at what is this in your hand, that question of Moses that God asked. And then we we jumped the last week of November, if you remember, and looked at Isaiah and the question that God asked him, who will go for us and that missions question. So that's kind of where we've been, and we have that Christmas break. And now we come back uh, to this series again. And I'm going to pick up in Mark 8, because I think Mark 8 actually asks perhaps the most fascinating question that uh, is asked in all the Bible, and then also maybe the most pertinent question uh, that Jesus has to ask us. And so I want you also to keep in mind the, the story of that uh, sense of doom. That's a good picture of what's going on here in Mark 8. If you were to read through Mark's gospel, just start in uh, chapter 1 and go up all the way through uh, the 16th chapter. Uh, and by the way, if you don't remember, I think we did that in 2016 and 17. We actually preached all the way through the, the, the gospel of Mark. But if you were to read through the gospel of Mark, discover that Mark's gospel is broken down into two divisions. The first eight chapters is really Mark telling us about Jesus and his earthly ministry as a servant. He's eating and he's teaching and he's telling parables. He's feeding the hungry. He's feeding the storms. He's just going around touching the, the misery Thinking about these two questions, and the first question is this: 
people say that I am. The actual disciples. Who do people say that I am? And then number two, who do you say that I am? Disciples, who do you say that I am? Christian, who do you say that I am? So with that in mind, let's look back Mark 8. Let's read our verses. We'll break these down in the weeks to come. But verses 22 through verse 38, Mark 8. Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him, and he begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spent on his, uh, on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, Well, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored. He saw everything and everyone clearly. And then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. So I want you to see, Jesus has healed someone. This is one of the common times in Scripture where Jesus doesn't heal instantaneously, but he heals gradually. And he touches the man and then he touches him again. You know, sometimes we need a second. Sometimes we need an extra dose of God's grace in our life to, to, to connect with us uh, in, in a transformative way. Isn't that good news? But anyway, that's the background of what's getting ready to transpire because it's out of this miracle that Jesus now is going to come to the disciples and ask these two questions we just mentioned. Now, Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, and he said to them, Who do men say that I am? They were question. And so they answered, Well, some say John the Baptist, but some others say Elijah, and others say one of the And then Jesus says to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, And this is, this is that great statement and confirmation of faith by Peter. You are the Christ. In which you're the promised one. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one. He warned this man that he healed and had warned his disciples. Uh, this is something you need to keep to yourself. Now, the reason is just keep in mind because of what's coming. The crucifixion is coming, uh, the death of Jesus is coming, the fullness of who he is has not yet been revealed. And so he says, what he's saying is basically right now, just kind of keep this under your hat because uh, it's important that you need to just kind of understand what's going on in, uh, in time right now. And so he said, you guys just kind of hold that to yourself. And it's at this point that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. So here's the transition. And he took uh, he spoke the word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, notice, Jesus says to the man he healed, Jesus says to the disciples, don't tell anybody, but Jesus is telling everyone. Jesus is speaking open about, openly about this. And, but uh, Peter wants to, uh, to chastise him and say, this, this is silly talk. This is, this is ridiculous talk. You, you can't talk about that. But when he had turned around, he looked at the disciples, and he rebuked Peter, and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And so, uh, Jesus says, this is, this is a God thing. 
this is something that God wants for you to know. And so he chastises Peter. And when he called the people to himself, with the disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now just think about verse 36. Because, dear friend, if you don't get the answer right on the first two questions, verse 36 is really the, the crunch of the problem. What's at stake? Or what will a man give in exchange for silver? 37. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And I want us to think this morning about verse 27 specifically. Who do people say that I am? I want to say to you this morning, and I preached this in, in part in the past. I've not preached it as an entire message before, not that I know of. But I'm going to say there's really only four answers, possible answers, to the question of who Jesus is. Who do people say that Jesus is? Let's just think about that one question this morning. I'm going to give you the four possible answers that the world offers us. Number one, Jesus was nothing more than a legend. In other words, what we read in Mark, what we read in the New Testament, is nothing more than simply a good story. Yes, he touched lives. He left behind an unforgettable weight or impression upon those he came in contact with. Uh, he even left behind a, an unforgettable impression upon the world today. But in the end, it's just a story. It's just a legend. I think there are many who feel this way about Jesus. They give the name of Jesus. They give the man of Jesus a lot of respect. But when all is said and done, he's to be cherished no more, no less than any other person or human in life that went about doing good and being good. As a matter of fact, uh, in my research this week, I came across an article that I had never heard before. It was rather fascinating. It was from the Smithsonian magazine. It's entitled The Little Known Legend of Jesus in Japan. Now the story is about a mountain hamlet in, in the northern part of Japan, and it claims, or they claim, that Jesus Christ was buried there. Now how can you do that? That Jesus is, was buried in Japan. Let me read you a little bit of the article. In Shinko, the greatest story ever told is retold like this. Jesus first came to Japan at the age of 21 to study theology. This was during the so-called lost years. That's the 12-year gap that's unaccounted for in the New Testament. He landed on the uh, western uh, coast port of... I'm not even going to try to say that name anymore. It is about 1500 miles. But it's, uh, it's just across the uh, Mission Bay. And uh, supposedly he had become a disciple and a, a, a great master. I don't know what I call it. Learning the Japanese language and the Eastern culture, he said, at age 33, he returned to Judea by way of Morocco. Uh, he talked up a, he talked about what a, 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 a 
becomes much full and wide in a scroll that's purported to be what Christ lavished free on the Old Testament. It supposedly was dictated as he would die there in Leviticus. A team of looking on a company called Archaeology from the International Society of Research in Ancient Literature uh, discovered this scroll that was written, dictated by Jesus uh, in 1936. That manuscript, along with other alleged unearthed by the Sheik Shikha Christian around the same time, supposedly fleshed out Christ's further crucifixions between Judea and Japan and pinpointed Shingo as the final resting place. The article did go on to say, as luck would have it, also we found out that the graves of the mother of the youth were just 15 miles west of Japan. So anyway, we think we're going to see Now, I say that and I read you that, but I was fascinated in this one little fact in the story that there were over 20,000 something people that visit the Shingo uh, tomb every year to see the death burial place of Christ. So if you read this, I'll make you think, how does this happen? Well, the Smithsonian folks who were writing the article going to say that that you need to understand that in Japan and in this area particularly, that Japanese folk religion has a real tendency to be spongy. In other words, it ends up kind of a belief of, of just about anything that's ever touched it. And so they just kind of take a little bit from anything that they've ever been exposed to. And so the idea, the, the thought is that somewhere along the way, there's been a Christian influence that touched the lives of those here in this country. And they got just a little bit of Christianity. They begin to kind of make it their own. They begin to kind of just blend it into their own culture, their own thinking. And they kind of came up with this concocted, legendary story. And, and you say, well, that's so silly. That's so ridiculous. And who does that? Dear friend, we are living in a culture that's doing that every day. We are surrounded, and I, I would say there's dear folks maybe here or listening at home online, that your whole theology is a Facebook theology. That you're that you, your belief about God and, and truth and right is what is just put out on Facebook by whoever. You know, we, there are some people who have a deeper Facebook theology than a Facebook theology. I'll, I'll tell you this, and I'll challenge you this. If you want to do something trying and challenging, read through the Bible every day. Set that as a, as a goal for you. It'll, it'll challenge you. You're going to find there's a lot of things in the Bible that is troubling. There's a lot of things in the Bible that, 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 that will push you and challenge you in the way that you think as a, just as a human being. Because God's ways are not our ways. And so, you know, here we are, that uh, we live today in a world where people still say that Jesus is what? Just a legend, just a good story. There's a second possible answer to the question that Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? There are some that would say, well, Jesus is just a liar. He's just a liar. Now, I will say this. If if you tell me that you hold to number one, that Jesus is just a legend, I would tell you if, if that is to be true, then really what's more true than that is number two. 
so hypocrite because he told others to be honest, whatever it takes. And if that's the case, then we can say that, that Jesus, listen, was not good, but in actuality was evil because he deliberately told others to forsake their religious beliefs and trust him for their eternal destiny. As a matter of fact, the Jewish religious leaders actually charged Jesus with being uh, a demon possessed, John 8, 48, which scripture decidedly refutes. So if Jesus knew he was wrong, uh, he's evil, or he's a fool, and those lies led to his crucifixion. Dig a little deeper in this time, maybe for just a moment. Share something that Josh McDowell wrote uh, or had on his uh, ministry site. Uh, he was talking about uh, something that John uh, Stewart Mills, he's a philosopher, skeptic, agnostic of Christianity. But listen to what, I mean, this is not a Christian, I'm, I'm not quoting him. This is a non believer. But listen to what he says, admittedly, about his writings. Admitted that Jesus was a first rate ethicist, supremely worthy of our attention and emulation. This is what he's arguing. But about the life and saying of Jesus, there is a stamp of personal originality combined with profundity of insight. And the first rank of men of sublime genius, of whom our species can boast itself, when this preeminent genius is combined with the qualities of probably the greatest moral reformer and martyr to that mission, who ever existed upon earth, religion cannot be said to have been made a bad choice in pitching on this man as the ideal representative of God and humanity. Not even now would it be easy, even for an unbeliever, to find a better translation of the rule of virtue from the abstract to the concrete than to endeavor so to live that Christ would approve of all things. In other words, Mill is saying this, Jesus is the perfect example of all that he taught. His words matched his actions. His actions matched his words. He didn't live the life of a lie. This is what William Lecky, he was a, a, an Irish historian uh, and opponent of organized Christianity. But this is what he said. It was reserved for Christianity to present to the world an ideal character which through all the changes of the 18th century has inspired the hearts of men with an impassioned love, has shown itself capable of acting on all ages, nations, and degrees, and conditions, has not been only the highest standard of virtue, but the strongest incentive to its uh, practice, and has exercised so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of Jesus, the three short years of active life, has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the distinguished philosophers and all the uh, exhortations of moralists who have ever lived. Did you hear that? Here's someone who's not a Christian and said, listen, Jesus did in three years more to change our world for the better than all other good people, moralist people, philosophers, Plato and whoever, whoever lived. He was that unique. Philip Jacob, a church historian, said this, Jesus 
was a character so original, so complete, so beautiful in the season, so perfect, so human, yet so high above all human greatness. Who could be David Crown or Pearson? He goes on to note that Jesus never lost the even balance of his mind, but sailed serenely over all the troubles and persecution of the sun above the clouds. Does always return the wisest answers to tempting questions? Who calmly and deliberately predicted his death on the cross? Basically, what he's arguing is saying that when you look at Jesus, Jesus never spoke like a normal person, never acted like a normal person. He was above and human to the point that he lived. What I'm telling you here, friend, is this that, that those that just come at Jesus. From a purely academic sort of view, not a Christian view, not, not, not a faith view, not, not a, 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 a just a empty sort of hope view, but come at it in a very studied light. Say, look, Jesus was like no other. And Jesus, listen, was no doubt. A third thing. That we could say about Jesus, I guess, as a possible answer to who he was, who the people say he was. But if he wasn't a legend, if he wasn't a liar, then perhaps he was a lunatic. This is a third option. You know, he thought he was God. Doesn't sound like maybe he was all there, right? Christian philosopher Peter Kemp said this A measure of your insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. If I think I'm the greatest philosopher in America, I am only an arrogant fool, he said. If I think I'm Napoleon, I'm probably a little over the edge. If I think I'm a butterfly, I'm fully embarked from the sunny shores of Santa Cruz. Did he say this? He's just measuring. He said, now think about it. But if I think I'm God, <laughs> I must be dumb. That's what Samaritan said. Because God is the gut that can't be found. It's the infinite and the final. Why then, why not allow our lunatic that almost no one who has read the Gospels can honestly and seriously conceive that option? Because it says the savviness, the human wisdom, the attractiveness of Jesus emerges from the Gospel story. It's unavoidable. It's an unavoidable force. Even to the most hardened and prejudiced and he adds three things. There are three precise things that make up Jesus that shows us he wasn't a lunatic. Number one, his practical wisdom and his ability to read hearts. Jesus knew the hearts and minds of people. And he offered the most practical wisdom available. That's clearly critical in Matthew 47. Two, his deep and winning love, his passionate compassion, his ability to attract people and make them feel at home and forgiven. Folks, the multitudes followed Jesus, and they didn't abandon Jesus only until he started talking about dying and going to the cross. Folks, there was a, there were armies of people ready to rise up and fight under his name. If Jesus wanted to put political fear, Savior who died for the sins of the world. 
just as generally the way that he carried himself as he did. He's knowing where to put you. Then he takes a mile of gold and puts it in the water. It's God himself. Jesus was certainly unforgettable. So there you have it. Three possible options to who Jesus is. A legend, a liar, or a lunatic. And I can't think of another uh, an answer except the fourth answer, and it's what Peter says about Jesus. Here's the first. Jesus is real. It's our third option. Right here at the center of the gospel, Mark places Peter's confession. You're the Messiah. Up to this point, the underlying question has been, who is he? That's that's been the question that, that, that Mark has been asking from chapter 1 to chapter 8. Who is this guy? Who's the one who calms the seas and stills the, the, the winds and the storms and heals the sick and, and causes the, the, the lame to walk and the blind to see? After Peter's declaration on behalf of the twelve, Mark's narrative now becomes oriented into his mission. Not who he is, but what he's come to do. He's come to die. That's the crucial dividing point of the gospel. Listen, even the way the gospel account is written proves that Jesus is God. That that there is purpose and meaning in his being here in who he is. Listen to this. Jesus says, Who do people say that I am? And 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 before Peter gives the, the confession, he says, Well, this is some of what people are saying about you in verse 28. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah you name it. Some say one of the prophets. And I've, I've, I've preached on this before. Why do they say those three things or those three people? Well, think about it. John the Baptist speaks of the preaching of Jesus. Dear friend, no one ever preached like Jesus preached. Think of from a preacher boy who has studied preaching far and wide. I mean, I, I, I drove the seminary five days a week, a uh, 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 two and a half hour drive uh, in totality there and back from Louisville to Harrisburg, uh, an hour and 15 minutes one way, an hour and 15 minutes back. And I listened to three sermons uh, during that trip every day. I listened to Adrian Rogers, Charles Cannon, W.A. Crystal, you name it. Uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention, I probably listened to it, and I listened to preachers outside the Southern Baptist Convention, learning and studying the art of preaching. But I can tell you, not one of them could touch the preaching of Jesus. Not Billy Graham, not any of the greats, not all of them combined. No one ever preached like Jesus preached. Not even See, the best thing we can do, the best we can do, is what thus saith the Lord, what would Jesus preach and what the Lord himself was saying. We could say, believe in your Savior and be forgiven. Jesus could say that your sins have been forgiven. No one would ever believe. Some said he was Elijah.
And some say you're one of the prophets. When you think about the prophets, you think about the, the pathos, the, the passion, the zeal, the love. Oh, your friend, but love Jesus made you. You have a reward. For you know one and no body. You are some Samaritan woman outside the, the city in the noon of day because you are no body. Jesus must be the Lord. That's the only answer. What will we give in exchange for our souls? He says, that's the question. Most of us have seen this, the game show Jeopardy. We can't hardly think about it without hearing in the back of our mind. How would you know? But most your soul the show, Alex would often say, is that your final answer? And your friend, that's the question I'm put to you this morning. What's your final answer? Here is Jesus. Not only am I going to hear your friend this morning, I'm going to tell you, I'll be there. I'll be there. There's coming a day when the game is going to be too hard. And the final answer is you get it. Well, you get it. You can buy into the world. The world says it's a legend. Because it wouldn't get to the grave prepared for the world. For you. You can say, you know what? Lord, our prayer is that 
as Peter gave that, that step in response of faith, you are the pledge. And you are the word of Lord that has been has been done and been given down the line. It isn't actually any different than any other thing that I have to do in the context of the Bible. And I don't know why Peter said it. Because that's a decision that must be made in his life. Lord, today perhaps someone needs to come and say, I want Jesus for you to be my Savior and my Lord. I want to, I want to make that confession while I'm here before the altar is finally made. Lord, whatever decision needs to be made to put to death your son who's left the dead in the grave, let that decision be made that Jesus will be your we pray God's blessings upon you as you worship with us today. If God has led you to make a decision today for Jesus, we would love to hear about it. We invite you to come to our website, cometothecross.net. Our online decision card will allow you to tell us about the decision that you're making. All decisions, all contacts are kept private and are confidential. However, we would be able to pray for you and perhaps I'd even be able to call you and pray with you about what God has led you to do if you so desire. So fill out the form, let us know, and just know that we love you and God loves you, and we're excited that you're taking this first step for God today.